the word of the Lord says this, and they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. May we be blessed by the reading of God's word this morning. You may all be seated. Good morning. It's good to be with you again in God's house on this beautiful Sunday morning. As you know, Thursday is Veterans Day, so I want to recognize all the veterans that are in the room this morning. If you were a veteran and served this country and sacrificed, if you would please rise so that we can give you uh, recognition for that. Let's give uh, these men and women a round of applause for their sacrifice for us. Ronald, you uh, look sharp in that uniform. Still fits. That's amazing. They moved the buttons for you? I got you. Okay, okay. Again, veterans, thank you for your sacrifice, for uh, all that you've given to us uh, to, to have this place, even to be free to come and worship uh, God this morning. So many countries do not have the freedom that you fought uh, for us to have to even to be able to come and celebrate and worship the Lord this morning. So often, I know for me, I can take that for granted, that every Sunday, um, without fail, I can rise, get up, and go to church where many countries around the world do not have that freedom and opportunity. So again, thank you for your uh, sacrifice and for your family's sacrifice to allow us uh, to continue to worship the Lord this morning. Uh, just two other announcements. Uh, we will be having our annual Thanksgiving uh, meal Sunday, November the 21st, immediately following the worship service. Uh, the hostess committee is requesting each family bring two large dishes to share, uh, including desserts, salads, and sides. So uh, we, the church, will provide um, the turkeys and hams uh, and rolls and tea, uh, but if you would bring uh, two side dishes, that'd be great. We also need four or five volunteers uh, if you're willing to cook a turkey, smoke a turkey, fry a turkey, uh, however you want to do a turkey, we just need your help in cooking uh, turkey. If you'll see me, uh, Tracy's not here this morning, or email Tracy if you're willing to uh, cook uh, a turkey, uh, please let us know. But that is uh, immediately following Sunday's service on November the 21st will be our annual Thanksgiving meal. As we've missed the last couple uh, due to COVID, we'll come back and have our meal together this uh, November. And lastly, let's pray for our youth pastor, and then we'll pray for this morning's service as we get started. Go to the Lord with me in prayer this morning. God, we humbly bring ourselves before you, a holy God. 
And we're grateful we even have the opportunity to do that. It's because of your son Jesus that gives us access and the opportunity to become before your throne room of grace and mercy and peace. And so as we do that now, God, I pray through the Holy Spirit that he would illuminate our, our hearts and our minds and our ears to your word. That none of us would leave as we came in. We'd all leave transformed by the gospel, by the, by the good news of Jesus in our lives. And we continue to ask God for your wisdom and provision for us as a church as we begin to look for a youth pastor. That you would prepare again us for them and them for us. Pour out your wisdom that we would uh, find and choose uh, the right person for this position. As this is a much needed position in, for the lives of our students. Just a few uh, feet away. Some even in this room this morning. We need it. Someone that loves you and loves kids and wants to make you known uh, to this lost world through the gospel. So please uh, bring us the right person and prepare us for that person. Now, God, we come to you. We look at your word. Your word would do it only as it can do. And that's the divide uh, the, the soul and the flesh. God, I pray that we would put to death the things of the flesh this morning by your word. And that through your word, you would illuminate the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. So lead us, guide us, bring us great hope through the resurrection of your Son this morning. We pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. If you've been with us, we're walking through uh, the book of Esther. As I said in week one, many theologians, and the more I study Esther, the more I'm like, man, no wonder they said uh, many people uh, do not study or preach the book of Esther. This is a very difficult book to preach. It's difficult because there, there's never a mention of a prayer. There's never a mention of anything spiritual in this book. So you have to kind of unwrap the book to really get to the heart of the book. God's name is never mentioned in the whole book of Esther. And so it makes it difficult as I have been preparing this week to, to bring forth what God would have for us to bring. The book of Esther can be summarized in one sentence. It is the providence of God, that God sees all things. Not only does he see all things, but he's active in all things. So it's not just that God sits back in heaven and observes all that's going on on the planet, but he sees it, and what he sees, he acts upon what he sees. And we'll see that again here in chapter 4. Just kind of a recap of where we've, where we've been and this morning where we're going. Here we are in the life of the Jews. The Jews have been taken out of Israel, put into exile. And so they're in a foreign land. They've been in a foreign land for a while. God has then come through the prophets and said to them, hey, it's time to return back to Jerusalem. And many of the people went back to worship God. Jerusalem was where the temple was, where the temple was, where God was. And so God wanted his people to be back in relationship, fellowship with him in the temple. Many Jews went back, but there was some that remained in exile because it was easier for them. I wonder for us this morning how many of us would say God's called us somewhere, but we live in disobedience because it's easier to live in disobedience than it is obedience. But what we'll see is that God's hand is even in their disobedience. And so God is wanting to relieve his people of the bondage they, they continue to live in, even though they're living in that under choice. He 
has a desire for his people. You see that throughout the whole uh, Bible. God's heart for God's people. And God is active at always redeeming his people even when they're in active disobedience. God pursues us way more than we pursue God. And so here we are in Esther. There's people that are in exile. And God wants to relieve them of their bondage. And so he begins to put forth in motion how he's going to do that. And that's where we find Esther. Remember, King Xerxes is the most powerful man in all the land. We see this in chapter 1. He's throwing this party. And in throwing this party for six months, he, at the very end of the party, invites his wife, the queen, to come in before these drunken soldiers um, to, to kind of put her on display, and she refuses. Now again, when you just read it for what it's reading, you're like, what does this have to do with anything? This is God actively about to do something and put someone in place of the queen so that God could use what we'll see even today, Esther, to bring uh, freedom to his people. The queen refuses. It uh, makes the king angry. He divorces the queen and sends her away. And then then we flip over to chapter 2. Chapter 2 is this span of time where there is no queen and this king is wanting more and more power. At the beginning of chapter 2 is where he comes home from Greece as defeated king and there's no one there. And so uh, the king and his young men devise this plan to find a queen and they do what we would call a bachelorette. They bring all these uh, bachelorettes in front of the king. The king chooses a new queen. And God, in his sovereignty, in his provision, is providing a queen, Queen Esther, to take over. That's where we see chapter 2. So Esther becomes the queen. And then in chapter 3, where we were at last week, there was this man, Haman, who wanted power. He was an egomaniac. He wanted people to bow down to him. And so he gives out this decree because he's now the second in command of all the land that everyone, when he would show up to a room, that everyone would bow down. There's this man, Mordecai. Mordecai is the uncle or the stepfather of Esther. He refuses to bow down. It makes Haman livid. And so much so that he sends out a decree. Because of this one man's disobedience, I'm not only going to kill him, but I'm going to kill all the rest of the Jews that remain in all the providences. So there's about 15 million Jews at that time in the land that he is going to wipe out because of Mordecai's disobedience to the law. It was the first genocide of the Jewish people. We would see, fast forward uh, into the 20th century, Hitler would do the same thing. And so that's where we're at here as we start chapter 4. Chapter 4, you could put it this way, is the turning point in the book. If the book had hinges, this would be the hinge that the book turns on. Because the rest of this book is how God is now going to use Esther really to deliver his people. So I want to look at a few things from this passage this morning. There's really four main characters in the story. You have the king, you have Haman, his henchman, the wicked man, you have Mordecai, and you have Esther. The first two, the king and Haman, they never change. They stay wicked. 
But here in chapter 4, we begin to see progress, not perfection, of Esther and Mordecai. Something happens in the heart of these two people that God is going to now begin to use and move and bring forth compassion and bring forth love and bring forth this place of passion to be used by God in such a way to deliver his people. So this is a progressive part of the book. My hope and prayer as I've been studying this is that we would be way more like Esther and Mordecai than we would be like Haman and the king. These two other men, they never change. My prayer is for us that we would be men and women that God would use progressively as we change and we come into what we call sanctification, the ongoing work of becoming like Jesus. We see that here in the text. So let's start with Mordecai, then we'll get to Esther, then we'll get to the application. Here's what it says in Esther chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. We get to see the heart of Mordecai, his heart begin to change. It says, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes. Well, what has all been done? What is all that he had learned about? What Mordecai had now learned was that because of his, because of his rebellion against Haman, that Haman sent out a decree to all 127 providences that the Jewish people would all be annihilated. And so it comes to Mordecai. He learns about it. And what does he do when he learns the fate of other people? It says that he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went into the midst of the city and cried out aloud and a, with a bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. So here we have Mordecai. We see the heart of Mordecai, that he has compassion for his people. So much so that he dresses himself in what we would call mourning clothes. He begins to weep. He begins to wail out loud publicly for the people of God. His heart is so stirred that he weeps continually, continually for the heart of God. I want to ask you this question. Do you have a heart like Mordecai? Do you grieve over the fate of other people? Like if you're a believer this morning, there ought to be moments in your life that you weep for your lost neighbor. If you have family members that don't know Jesus, do you weep for them. You see, Mordecai understood and he believed that the law that was given, that all would perish. He wept loudly so other people could see it and experience his grief for lost people. This ought to remind us of what Jesus does in Luke Chapter 19, verse 41. This is right where Jesus is about to go into the Passion Week, where he's making his way into Jerusalem to be hung on a cross to die for all the lost people. And it says this in Luke chapter 19. And when he drew near and saw the city, what did Jesus do? He wept over it. So do we have a heart like Mordecai? 
Do we really believe what God says in His Word will come to fruition? Those who do not know me will perish. They'll spend eternity apart from Christ. They will be in the same way that these Jewish people were going to be. They will be annihilated with no hope. Do we believe that? Because if we believe that, that will move us with compassion. And it will move our hearts to a place of weeping over lost people. House chapel. Do we weep for the lostness of our city? Are we moved with compassion? See, Mordecai was moved with compassion and he wept. He wept so much that he had to get the message of what was going to happen to Esther because he believed that if he could get the message to Esther, Esther would do something about it. So he sits himself in front of the king's gate. How come he sat in front of the king's gate? Because it says in verse 3, he wasn't allowed to go into the king's palace. No one wants a Debbie Downer in the king's palace. The king doesn't want to be around negative people. So if you were sat in ashes and sackcloth and were weeping, you were not allowed into the presence of the king. And this is what it says. Now we begin to see the heart of Esther. So first application for us this morning. Do we grieve over people? The next will be this. Will we be led with conviction to do something about what we grieve? It says this in verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen, she was deeply distressed. So the first thing that we see is this, that Esther is in the palace she has no idea what's going on until she gets word that her uncle, her stepfather, is weeping at the gate. So much so that the word comes back to Esther and Esther is deeply distressed about what's going on. She wants to know what's going on with her family, with her uncle, with her stepdad. So she sends word back through these eunuchs, through her servants, to go to uh, Mordecai to bring him back into the house. It says this, it's a, a very odd place. In chapter 4, verse 4, it says she sent garments to clothe Mordecai. So here Mordecai is outside the city. These people bring him new clothes. You're like, what? why would they bring him new clothes? Just give him a, a napkin to get his, his tears away. No, what Esther knew was he had to have a change of clothes, a change of appearance to even be able to get into, see her. And so he, she's sending him clothes, not because he needs new clothes, but she knows she needs him to change in order for her to see him. He refuses. He says he refuses to put on these new clothes. He will not accept them. He wants to continue to weep for where these men and women and their fate. It says this in verse 5, Then Esther called one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend to her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what was and what was happening, why it was. And he went out to Mordecai at the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money, the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. So now here Mordecai is sharing his fate, sharing the fate of the Jewish people so much so he even includes the money that was going to be, that's on his head. It's, it's, 
uh, ransom money or blood money that Mordecai is sharing with this man that's going to bring word back to Esther. And then in verse 8, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and to explain it to her. He commanded her to go to the king and beg favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. So Mordecai sends message back through this eunuch, back to Esther to say, hey, here's what's happening outside the city. It's been several months that this has been going on, so much so it took months for that decree to get to all the 127 provinces, and Esther has no clue about the fate of her people until this moment where the eunuch comes and brings the decree back to Esther. Esther reads the decree, and Mordecai, in that message back to her, says, hey, you have to get before the king. You have to plead the case of these Jewish people. You have to go to the king and be led with compassion and have a heart for your people. And then what does it say? In verse 10, then Esther spoke and commanded him to go back to Mordecai. So here's Mordecai and Esther having this exchange through this servant. Does all the king's servants and the people of the king's providence know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. And so Esther sends back a word to Mordecai and says, hey, I know what you're asking me to do, but it's terrifying. I know you want me to go before the king and plead our case and see if he'll give an exemption to this law, this decree that's been put out, but I can't go in there. I can't go before the king. I can't plead our case. Because you know the law. The law is I'll surely die. I'll be put to death. It says, except for the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king for 30 days. She says to Mordecai, the king has not wanted to see me for 30 days. Remember, this is the woman that captured his affection, his eye, five years prior. And now he's wanting nothing to do with Esther, the queen. So often when we come to the story and we come to the Sunday school version of the story and it's King, King Xerxes and Esther holding hands in the throne room. That's not what's happening. There's a separation that's happening between Esther and the king. The king wants nothing to do with her. And if he wanted something to do with her, he'd have to call Esther. Esther just couldn't walk into the palace, couldn't just walk into the bedroom and have a conversation with her husband. He had so much power that he would have to give order for her to come in. And if she came in on her own, it says the law was this, that she would be put to death. And she knows this. And she says, hey, he hasn't called me for the last 30 days. I don't think it's wise for me to walk into where the king is because I'm going to die. I wonder for us, church, how often God has called us to something, but it's our fear that holds us from doing what God has called us to do. And we give excuses, and we can give excuses because the excuse she gave was an accurate excuse. It was the law. But this will happen to me if I do what I need to do. 
That word gets back to Mordecai. And here's the crux of the passage. Here's the crux of it for our lives as well. These are some of the most famous verses in all of Scripture for sure in this short book of Esther. That word, her fear comes back to Mordecai. Her fear of not being able to move, to do something, to be led with compassion, to be led with obedience, to find salvation for her people. Verse 12, they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And then Mordecai told them in reply to Esther, this is my reply back to Esther, tell Esther this, do not think to yourselves that in the king's palace you will escape any more than any of the other Jews. Basically, he says to her, hey, Esther, you're a Jew. And so he's going to kill you regardless. So you can go before the king and make this plea to the king and die, or you can say nothing and die. The choice is yours. You won't escape the fate of death. Or if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. So Mordecai says this to her. God wants to use you to bring relief and deliverance. And if you don't do what God is saying to be used by God to bring relief and deliverance, this is where we see the providence of God. This is where we see the sovereignty of God. That even though man has choice and man can rebel and sin against God, God is going to accomplish his purposes. And so Mordecai says to her, it's either going to be you or someone else. Are you going to be obedient to God? I could pause there and give a sermon just on those few words. If you keep silent, at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. That is true for us, church. God has called us as the church to have a heart like Mordecai, to have a compassion for lost people, to bring relief and deliverance. And we can act in outright disobedience to take the word of God to lost people. And you can go your whole life and never speak the name of Jesus to anyone. And, and never share the gospel with anyone. But the promise is this. God will use someone else. But here's the truth and the promise. God wants to use you. But he will use someone else. And that's what he's saying. That's what Mordecai is saying to Esther. Esther, you have this opportunity, this privilege, this God-given command to bring relief and deliverance to your people. Will you be used by God to do that? I would ask us, church, that's true for us. Do you believe that God wants to use you, not the church, but you individually to bring relief and deliverance to this lost place? And then do we collectively, church, believe that God wants to use us, Powell's Chapel, to bring relief and deliverance? It's by no mistake that almost 150 years ago, when there was no one in this community, that God planted this church in this community. Why? Because he knew, he foresaw the future that one day hundreds 
and hundreds and hundreds of homes will begin to be built right around us. Because God wants to use Powell's chapels to bring deliverance and relief to lost people. I pray that we're not just a building that sits on 27 acres and does not become the light and salt in this community. Because here's what's true. We can see this throughout history. And we can continue to meet weekly in this building and never take the gospel message. But what will be true is another person God will raise up and God will bring them to this community and God will use them to plant a church in this community to reach the lostness of this community. But that would be such a shame and shame on Powell's Chapel if God has to, has to do that because of our disobedience. We're not just simply here to gather on a Sunday morning to sing a few songs, to hear me preach, and then go home and do nothing with what we've just heard. May we take the gospel into this lost community and bring relief and deliverance to people that are in bondage. That is why God's put us here. If you go back to our history books and you begin to read the history of Powell's Chapel, it was a group of people that had a desire to know God and to make him known in this community. That is the reason they put this church here. It was because they lived in lostness and they had a desire that God would be known, not in just this community, but around the world. That's what Dr. Powell, the, the namesake of this church, that was his whole desire. Dr. Powell left Powell's Chapel to take the gospel message to Mexico because he wanted to bring relief and deliverance for God's people. Well, here's the sad part in this story. It's what Mordecai says. But if you don't do it, God will do it through other means and other people. Goes on to say this. Either way, your fate is in God's hands. And then he says this. He says this, and he, and who knows? This is that famous passage. And who knows whether you have not come to this kingdom for such a time as this. What Mordecai is saying is, God put you here in this kingdom. God allowed you to be the queen. God knew what you were going to go through. God knew what his people were going to go through. And God knew you were going to have fear. But God put you here for such a time as this. What for? To bring relief and deliverance to his people. For such a time as this, House Chapel. You and I could have been born anywhere in the world at any era, at any time, because that's God's choice. But God and his goodness, his sovereignty, his provision decided to take us, this 60 people, at this time and put us here in 2021 for such a time as this, that God would use this remnant of people to go into Walter Hill and make his name known. For such a time as this. God put you at your workplace. God put you in your schools. God put you with your husband, with your wives. For such a time as this. What is that time for? To bring relief and deliverance to lost people. How do we accomplish that? How will 
Esther accomplished bringing relief and disaster to her people. The first is she has to be obedient. Says this, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. She's obedient to the call. She acts in obedience. As where before she had fear, as where before she had a trepidation, as where before she had resistance, now she says, I hear it. I hear that God has placed me here. I'm going to do something about it so that God won't use someone else, so that God would use me. She says, go and let us act in obedience. So the first is obedience. The next is this, dependence. It says, go and gather all the Jews and what? Hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat and do not drink for three days and three nights. And I, my young women, will also fast as you do. Then I'll go to the king. She first needs obedience. But then she needs dependence. How is she going to get her dependence? It's through God and through his people. First, she's dependent on God. That's why she sets a fast. Anytime in the book of, of throughout the Bible, when you see a place of fasting, it's always coupled with prayer. And it's always asking God to give us strength to do the impossible. So she has this obedience, but she knows it just can't simply be obedience. I need some power that's greater than myself that's going to push me through my obedience. So I'm dependent on God. So it's not resting on me. It's going to rest on the power of God. And so she says, hey, let's get the church. Let's get this community and let us fast and pray and beg to God that God would do and use me in a powerful way because what I'm about to do is terrifying. What I'm about to do is I may not come out alive and I need the courage and I need the strength to go into the king's palace and to make this uh, declaration to the king about what's going to happen to my people. And I need to beg him to bring relief from that decree. So she's obedient, but then she's asking the church for for really true dependence and power from God. I wonder, church, first are we obedient to act? I'll bet a bunch of us are willing to be in obedience with God, but we're terrified. Therefore, we must have dependence on God. Are we fasting and are we praying for one another? Are we fasting and praying for the power of God to be used in and through this church to bring the gospel message to lost people. We can have obedience all day. But if our obedience doesn't compel us to action, then we really have no obedience at all. But our obedience must be dependent, not on ourselves, but on God. That's the greatness of the sovereignty of God. You see, this is what one writer said as I was studying this week. Thank God that the salvation of people do not rest on my shoulders. Because if it rested on my shoulders, I promise this, I would cower behind this pulpit every week and not have the boldness to speak. Because that pressure would be way too much for me to handle. If your salvation, the salvation of this neighborhood depended on me, 
my shoulders are not big enough, I, I, I'm not wise enough, I don't have the right words. If all people's salvation depended on me, depended on you, we'd all cower in the corner. And I wonder, church, if we're cowering in the corner because we truly believe that salvation rests on us. The salvation of a human soul does not rest on you. It rests in the hands of God. It is God who will save, not man. The only thing that rests on us is the boldness to proclaim. We proclaim and the rest is left up to God. God does the saving, but it will be through the proclamation of his word. So salvation doesn't rest on us, but the proclamation of God, God's word does. So we proclaim the way we see Esther here in a moment, proclaim to the king what needs to be done. It says, then, then I will go to the king. Here's the beautiful four words of all the passage. Then I'll go to the king. Though it was against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Basically, he says, so may it be. I'll be obedient. And if I die, I die. That's not dependent on me. That's up to the Lord. I trust in the goodness and sovereignty of God. So I'll be obedient. I'll be dependent. And I'll make this message known. And if I die for it, I die for it. This all brings us to an application. Well, this crisis for us that we live in, this lost world, is a crisis. Turn on the news. But every crisis is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to be used a God to bring relief and deliverance for his people. Which brings me to the way of application. Will we be like Mordecai? Will we be like Esther? But here's the promise for us. The same way that Esther walked into a king's palace and mediated for her people. We have a greater mediator than Esther. His name is Jesus. There's a story in Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus had just died and been buried and rose from the dead. And his body was not found in a tomb. And there's these two men, Cleopas and No Name, are walking away from Jerusalem. They're walking to Emmaus. And on that journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus, they're discouraged. Because they had put their hope in this man named Jesus, that Jesus would deliver them, would set them free. And now the hope was dashed because Jesus and his body are gone and there hadn't been relief the way they were hoping there would be relief. And Jesus shows up on the journey with them. And showing up on the journey with them, they begin to have this conversation. And Cleopas says to Jesus, are are you the only one in Jerusalem that hasn't heard about the Messiah and how he's Dead, and they stolen his body. And then Jesus speaks up and he says this, Oh, you of little faith, you foolish of heart. 
And then Jesus says this in verse 24. He says as he's walking with them, he turns to them and they turn to him. And in their unbelief, Jesus knows their unbelief. But Jesus, starting with Moses or starting with the, the, the law, walks them through every Old Testament story. In every Old Testament story, Jesus is revealing himself in those stories. I know without a shadow of a doubt this is one of those places that Jesus would have shared. He would have shared, hey, you know that story about Esther and how Esther delivered the Jewish people from being annihilated. How she was a mediator between the people and between the king and she stood with boldness and was willing to lose her life for your sake that you would be free. Jesus said, I am that person. I'm the better mediator. Jesus would have pointed out how 15 million Jews were going to die that day. But because of the courage of one woman, they were saved. We see that in chapter 5. But Jesus would have pointed to himself and say the same is true today. I've come to save not just millions of people, but billions of people. My desire is that no one perish. And I'll, I'm the mediator. I'll stand before you as sinful people and before holy God. I'll mediate on your behalf. So King Jesus today mediates to bring us relief and deliverance. He stands before God and makes our petition known to God and says to him, bring relief to those people. I know the law has been sent out that the law says all these people must die. But Jesus says, no, 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 put it on me. I'll mediate. The same words that Esther would have spoken, Jesus spoke to his father. If I need to die, I will die. If my death will satisfy your wrath, then so be it. I'll die. Esther was willing to lose her life to save others. Jesus did lose his life to, stay, uh, to save others. In the same way that Jesus died so we could have life, he also died so that we could have access, the same way that Esther took courage to have access to the throne of God. It's Jesus' death that gives us access to God. Esther was a great mediator. But we have a better mediator. His name is King Jesus. This is what Paul says. And I'll say this in closing this morning. There is one God. And there is one mediator between God and man. That man is Christ Jesus. See, it goes back. Jesus had the heart of Mordecai. He had compassion for lost people. He wept over the city. He weeps still over the heart of lost people. Not only did he have the heart of Mordecai, but he had the obedience. And he had the dependence of Esther. She was obedient, obedient to take death on a cross. He got the power from his father. That's what we see in John 17. 
Remember in John 17, he said, I don't really want to do this. It's in the garden. He says, but not my will. May that be our heart and our prayer this morning. I don't really want to, God. But I'm willing, not your will, not my will, but your will be done. May we have the heart of Mordecai. May we have the, the be obedience and dependence of Esther to bring relief and deliverance to lost people. Remembering that we have a mediator that stands in our defense. His name is King Jesus. Let us pray.